to, to talk about today's message, um, 9 through 11 is probably the most hard-hitting, other than 2 and 3, probably the most hard-hitting verses that are chapters that Paul gives us in Romans. And, and I'm going to give you a whole lot of front-loading, and then I'm just going to kind of lay the hammer down at the end. So just stick with me on that. In order to understand uh, Romans 9 through 11, we have to have a little bit of a history lesson. So Paul wrote Romans in about 57 AD. Um, in 49 AD, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, expelled all Jews from Rome. And at that time, you know, there, would have, there wouldn't have been any distinction between like traditional Jews and like Jews who now believe in Jesus. Like they just culturally and ethnically expelled all Jews from Rome. So in Rome in 49 AD, the only people left to grow the church were converted Gentiles. Well, those converted Gentiles began building the church the way that they thought that they should. And obviously their cultural influence was a whole lot different than the background of the Jews. So for five years, the Gentiles began building the church in Rome. And then after Claudius' death in 54 AD, some of those Jews started coming back to Rome. And so when that happened, there's this massive cultural clash that happens when the Jews come back. You know, it's like, these Jews who have lived their entire life, you know, living out this sacrifice process and, and waiting for the Messiah, all of a sudden the Messiah comes, they convert, they're living out this salvation mindset, and then all of a sudden here comes this other group of people who have a completely different background and understanding of what it means to be a Christian are finding themselves attempting to build a new church together with completely different philosophies on the way that things need to go. So the best illustration I can think of to talk about this is grocery shopping with my parents. So as a child, I loved going grocery shopping with my mom, mainly because like, well, I, I didn't love it at first. I was forced to go at first because I was a child. Um, but as I grew, I enjoyed going to the grocery store with my mom because one, it gave us time just to chit chat with each other. And like, that's when we socialized, we just talked. And also I began to like really appreciate the art of, you know, cooking and looking at ingredients and stuff like that. So when my mom went to the store, my mom had a list and that list was written in order of which aisle you would come to. My mom would plan out meals for two weeks in advance. And honestly, as an adult now, I don't understand how my mom did this, but my mom worked a nine to five job in Atlanta, like an hour drive away, and would come home and cook a meal for me and my dad and herself that included a protein, two sides, a salad and bread every single night. And I'm like, Brie and I had air fryer popcorn shrimp and sweet potato fries last week, and that was dinner. So I'm like, I don't know how my mom did that, but it's pretty incredible. She was able to do that for three people, five nights of the week, uh, even Saturday sometimes. So my mom was extremely regimented when she went to the store. We didn't go down aisles. We didn't need to go down. We didn't buy superfluous stuff. Like we went in with a mission. My mom got what she needed. We went to the checkout. We left. My mom could make it through Kroger and Walmart in an hour flat. I mean, she is incredible. Now, swing to the other side of that. Um, one time my mom was out of town and my dad and I had to go grocery shopping. <laughs> you would have thought that like, it was like COVID grocery shopping again, like pre-COVID grocery shopping. We went down every single aisle. If my dad saw it and thought he might like it, we grabbed it. We bought a 15 pound bag of rice. We bought a 10 pound bag of grits. We bought three rolls of breakfast sausage, like 10 packs of bacon. He's like, I'll just throw it all in the freezer anyway. It's not a big deal. So my dad goes through the grocery store like, it's the last time he's ever going to the grocery store. <laughs> and buying also, like, he, we get to the sodas. My dad doesn't drink soda. And he goes, oh, Orange Crush. I love this as a kid. Buys two liters of Orange Crush <laughs> because he kind of liked it as a kid. And so all that to say, we, 
We do all that shopping and get home and still eat white bread with country crock butter, uh, uh, grits, and then like some warmed up hot dogs. Like, after all that shopping, you're still gonna cook like this. Okay, whatever, Dad. But there are two totally different philosophies on how grocery shopping needs to be done. My parents could not grocery shop together. I mean, it would be, it would be a, a disaster. So you have to see it the same way, that these Jews have a very regimented understanding of their faith. They've lived out for generations and generations and generations what it looks like to lead up to the Messiah returning. These Gentiles have been living this life of polytheism, you know, worshiping their own emperor, worshiping gods of different types, and all of a sudden they find Jesus and are trying to figure out what is this supposed to look like from us? And, and honestly, the Jews, Paul addresses them first, the, the Jews have like this entitlement mindset. They're like, no, 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 no. Like, this is kind of our thing. This is what we've been, you know, living up to. And then all of a sudden you Gentiles want to come in and try to like change the rules or, or have some sort of input. Like, no, 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 no. Like, we're descendants of Abraham. Like, this is our thing. And you guys are kind of like stepping on my funk. You know what I'm saying? So Paul hits them in nine, seven through nine. He says, being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had children too, this means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return this time next year and Sarah will have a son. So Paul very clearly lays out right here, it doesn't matter your physical blood seed descendant of Abraham. Because if we, even if we look at the seed of Abraham, you know, we've got God choosing Isaac over Ishmael, God choosing Jacob over Esau. It's not about a physical descendant. It's a descendant of God's promise leading up to Jesus. So what God is saying is you're not entitled to salvation just because of who your daddy is. You're not entitled to salvation or you're not better than anybody else because your granddaddy helped build the temple. That's not what makes you saved. And he moves on into nine, uh, chapter nine, verse 25. He says, concerning Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who are not my people, I will now call my people and I will love those whom I did not love before. Very clearly lays out. No, 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 you don't understand. They are not your people, but I am making them my people through Jesus. And then again, I know I'm hitting, with, hitting you with a lot of scripture, but stick with me. And then in Romans 10, he says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. So what Paul is saying here is, you're trying to say that this is your thing and like you're entitled to stay here. You're entitled to have ultimate control over this and you're telling these Gentiles to stay over here. You're telling them, you're not like us. You know, you don't understand God the way we understand God. You don't understand this whole salvation thing the way we understand it. And what Paul is saying is, then go show them. Let them see what it looks like. Let them see what it means to be Christ-like. Go and show them. You can't expect them to just understand. You can't expect them to just be like you. They don't have the same background as you. But what Paul is saying is, to be Christ-like is to go to those people and help them understand what it means to be Christ-like. What is Jesus like? You're not trying to, you're not looking at people and going, oh no, they just, they just aren't like me. Too bad. I guess you miss out on salvation. I guess Jesus doesn't come to you. Paul is saying you have to be Jesus to those people. You can't wait for them to all of a sudden have some sort of strange revelation. So when Paul says this to the, to the Jews, it's, it's got to feel like 
an, an encroachment upon their understanding. It's got to feel like this slap in the face ultimately to their culture. I mean, again, you have to understand this is generations and generations going back thousands of years of Jews who have been waiting for the Messiah. And then all of a sudden here comes these quote unquote outsiders and they're not wanting them to have a say in what's going on. Um, and I was trying to find an anecdote, a story to illustrate this whole point. And I was telling Bree, I was like, man, I'm like, I've got all my notes down. I've got like all the verses I want to hit. I've got the overall theme in the message, but I, I just can't think of a story to share to like make a, make a bridge to, to what's going on. I was like, I think I need to go for a walk. And she's like, okay. So behind our neighborhood, there's an abandoned golf course that somebody is mowing the middle of it. So it's like completely overgrown. And then there's like a little path going through. So I'm walking down this golf cart path and I'm talking to myself like a crazy person just because that's what I do. And so like, I'm talking like this, like I'm talking to you guys. I'm trying to think of stories to share. And I'm like, I've got so many stories that I want to tell you guys that, but I, I can't make them all relate. So I'm like working through them. I'm like, no, that doesn't really make sense. Oh, I'm thinking about this one. Oh, that's really funny. That doesn't really relate. And as I'm walking, I start coming up behind these houses and there's no fence or anything. It's just the house and then like a little golf cart path. And I'm walking and I'm talking to myself and all of a sudden I just hear this and I just turn immediately. There's like, and I don't want to over exaggerate because I don't want to make it seem like I'm, I'm trying to like hype it up, but it was basically like a polar bear coming at me like this. <laughs> This giant white polar bear is probably the closest thing that was like, you know, I mean, it was a huge dog, obviously. It probably wasn't quite the size of a polar bear, but let's just say that just for the sake of comparison. It's like this giant polar bear is like full on running at me. And I'm talking about like, you know, when you see like cheetahs on National Geographic chasing a gazelle, you know, their legs, they're like Superman out like this. Like, that's how fast this thing is running at me. And I'm like, I'm here. The dog is about three rows back. And you know, I mean, look at me. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, <laughs> okay. But, you know, I've got like a little pocket knife in my pocket and I literally start thinking like, Hezekiah is never going to see me again. <laughs> or, what am I going to do out here in the middle of this abandoned go? I'm going to die here by this polar bear dog. So he gets to about the front row and he skids across the dead leaves. And I'm still frozen. I'm just sitting there like this, you know, and he skids across the dead leaves and then he just keeps barking, just row, 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 row. And I'm just like, what's going on? And as he barks, I can tell when he lifts his neck, he has a shock collar on and there's an invisible fence. I start looking around and I can see the little posts sitting in the yard. And so then I'm like, hi, buddy. What's up, Bobby? How you doing, Bobby? You know, I'm like looking to see if the, the owners can see me. I'm like, he's a Bobby baby. So, so then I like skip away. I'm like, bye, buddy. But it's so, but he's so angry because he feels like I'm encroaching upon his territory. And that's exactly how the Jews feel with these Gentiles coming in. They're like, no, 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 no. You don't belong here. You're encroaching upon our territory. You're, you're, you're coming into something you have no idea about. You have no authority over. You have no entitlement. You have no part of it. And so then in 11, Paul moves into this, this metaphor of the tree. And he's saying that we are all now parts of that tree. And these Jews feel entitlement because they are original part of the tree. They're one of the original branches, right? And then the Gentiles, they start to feel entitled because other branches have been cut off so that they may be grafted in. So the Jews are saying, look, this is our lineage. This is our heritage. This is our thing. This is what belongs to us. And the Gentiles are saying, hey, you don't know what we've been through. You don't know the conversion that we've had and, and the things that we've done. The Jews or the Gentiles start justifying their acts and saying, hey, others were removed. Others of your people were removed so that we can be grafted in, so that we can be a part of this. 
And so both sides are starting to feel entitled to the salvation thing, and they're starting to count on their lineage. They're starting to count on their works. They're starting to, to make these lists of justifications for themselves. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Neither one of you are the root. Jesus is the root of that tree. All of these limbs can be cut off tomorrow, and that tree will continue to grow and, spout and sprout new roots. You are not the root. You are simply the branch. And, you know, and Paul comes at them kind of hard in these verses. You know, he, he's kind of reprimanding them throughout these, throughout these chapters and saying, all of you are dead wrong, and let me tell you why. And he beats the Jews over the head pretty hard with, with the, the, the killing of their culture, essentially. But then he brings it back to this. He says, do you not understand that both of you can rejoice in the fact that you have found redemption from equal measures of sin? You know, he goes to the Jews and he says, you want to sit here and tout all of your, your, uh, your lineage? Well, let's talk about this. Do you remember when you left Egypt and then immediately complained that you would be better off back in slavery than in the wilderness? Do you not remember Moses going up on the mountain and you couldn't even wait long enough to start worshiping another false god? Do you not remember getting to the promised land and then being exiled? Do you not remember asking for a king and God telling you you don't need one, but he gave you one simply because you wouldn't stop asking about it? Your hands are not clean in this. It doesn't matter that your granddaddy built the temple. It doesn't matter where you come from. And then to the Gentiles, it doesn't matter that others were removed for the sake of you bringing in. That's not what saves you. Both of you should rejoice in the fact that you have found redemption from equal measures of sin. And so as I, was, as I was doing this message, I kept thinking about the parable of the vineyard. And the parable of the vineyard, there's a man who owns a vineyard, and he goes out in the morning, and he finds some people to work, and he says, hey, I'll pay you a Daenerys for the day. And they said, okay, they come and work. He goes out a few hours later, and he tells some more people, I'll pay you a Daenerys for the day. They come and work. He goes out about midday, says, hey, I'll pay you a Daenerys to work the vineyard today. They say, okay. And then he does this throughout the day, and he comes to about the last hour of the day. And he comes to some people, and he says, what are you doing in the marketplace? And they said, nobody's hired us to work. And he says, well, come. Come work, and I'll pay you a Daenerys. So they get back to the vineyard, and these guys who have been working all day see these other dudes working for one hour, and then they all get down to the end, and they're paying them their money. And the guys are going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been working all day, and you're going to give me a Daenerys, and then this dude over here worked for one hour, and you're going to give him a Daenerys? That's not fair. What do you, what's the deal? I should be getting more than him. And the owner of the vineyard says, is it not my vineyard to do with as I please? Is it not my money to do with as I please? It doesn't matter how long you've been working in the vineyard or how short you've been working in the vineyard, all of us receive the same redemption. You know, and it, and it makes me think of all of this relating to, to our current uh, climate and, and how we can apply this to our own lives. You know, um, I come from a, a long line of cultural Christians, you know, like I probably can count on one hand the number of times I went to church as a kid. But if you ask my dad and mom if they were Christians, they'd say, absolutely, of course we're Christians. You know, I grew up in Georgia and in the deep south, like everyone's a Christian, you know, like the guy passed out on the street with a needle in his arm is a Christian. You know, the pastor of the church is a Christian. Like everyone you talk to is a Christian because that's just part of the culture. Um, and I was listening to the radio a couple weeks ago, actually, 
and they did a survey. In 1955, of the people surveyed, I think 93% of people in the United States identified as Christian. And now they did the survey just like three years, four years ago, and it was down to like 73%. That's weird. Why do you think 20% have all of a sudden disappeared over the past 70 years? And I think it's because this whole cultural Christianity is not sustainable. This whole calling yourself a Christian and then going home and refusing to live like Christ is not sustainable. This calling yourself a Christian and ignoring every sort of Christ-like attitude is not sustainable. Calling yourself a Christian and then standing on the corner and telling some particular group of people you hate them is not sustainable. Our nation is losing people calling themselves Christians because nobody wants to be a Christian if it's not any different than everything else. I'll tell you right now, I, I teach high school and there are kids in my school who need Jesus. There are adults in my school who need Jesus. And it's not our job to look at other people who have different political alignments, different lifestyles, different understandings of what it means to, to know God or don't even believe in God. It's not our job to look at them and go, man, they need Jesus. Yeah, you're right. Now go and show him. Go and show them Jesus. What are you waiting for? What do you think is going to show them Jesus? A post on Facebook? What do you think is going to show them Jesus? Standing on the corner holding a sign telling them that they're wrong for what they believe? What's going to show them Jesus? And that's what Paul's nailing home here is like, stop fighting over what makes you different and start looking at the idea that Jesus has redeemed both of you and made you the same through Christ's death. That's what's made you the same. No, I want you to think of, I, want, I did this exercise and I, I want you to do this exercise with me. Um, and I'm not perfect, so trust me, I've got somebody in my head. I want you to think of somebody that you can't stand, that just... <laughs> bugs you to death. And if your mind is too, too crowded, just think of one. And if you can't think of anybody, <laughs> if you can't think of anybody, think of like a group of people, perhaps. Think of somebody with a, you know, particular political alignment, somebody who lives a particular lifestyle, you know. I know a lot of people in here like to punch holes in paper. Some people like to punch holes in their face. If you dislike either one of those people, think of one of them. I want you to think about that person in your mind, and I want you to be honest with me. You don't have to say it out loud, obviously. I want you to picture them in your mind, and I want you to say, looking at their face, can you tell them you're not worthy of Christ's salvation? Jesus didn't die for you. Can you honestly make that claim to that person? If you can, come talk to me in Luke after service. If you can't, you have to realize it is your obligation to help that person know Jesus. If nobody else is, who's going to do it? Maybe that person's on your heart for a reason. Maybe God has put that person on your heart and a thorn in your side because he's trying to push you to step out of your comfort zone to love somebody other than the people that you've already loved, to understand love in a way you've never understood it. Because loving people that is easy to love is not love. That's not love at all. Are you kidding me? Bree does not have an easy time loving me. I know Luke talks me up a lot. I'm a pain in the butt. I promise you. Promise you, I frustrate myself. I know I frustrate her. But we've got to get to a place as a church where we are swinging doors open, calling people in because we are desperate for them to meet Jesus, and we have to be the ones that bring him to them. So, in closing, I just want to—I just want to say—I um, just love all of you. I, lo I love that Luke gives him the opportunity to speak. Um, and I don't want this message to seem like a punch in the face because even Paul, he closes it up. After punching and beating in the face, he, he puts a hand out and he says, but we have the power to be redeemed. 
It is through Christ and Christ Jesus alone that saves us. It is not anything we do, it's not anything we've done, it's not anything that we will do, but it's only through Jesus that we are saved. And that has to be the message to those coming in the doors as well. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter what they will do. We're not micromanaging them. What it is is coming in and telling them there is opportunity for them to find hope through Jesus alone.